is the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. Way more interesting than anything you're listening to on NPR. Probably less exciting than what you're watching on OnlyFans. Bruh. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started. Welcome back to the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. I'm Ashton Cohen. I'm joined today by Connor Boyack. Connor is the founder and president of the Libertas Institute, an organization that's had a lot of success educating the public and state legislators and pushing for policies that have made their way and, and been enacted into law. Uh, Libertas is located in Utah, which I'm sure a lot of our, our viewers are probably unaware. A lot of people don't talk about it, but Utah's consistently been ranked one of the best states to do business, one of the best in terms of quality of life, uh, one of the best governed states, even uh, receiving praise from both sides of the aisle. And uh, Libertas seems to be playing a big role in, in a lot of that. So we're going to talk about what's been working in Utah, what uh, other states can, can learn from the example that, that Utah set, and you know how to have a properly functioning country again. So, uh, Connor, thanks so much for being with me. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Let's start off there. You know, I'm, I'm not sure how familiar you are with, with California and California politics, probably a bit more now because so many of our residents have made their way over to Utah. I read that 20% of net migrants into Utah, domestic net migrants into Utah, are from California. So about one out of five of the people leaving from other states to Utah are from California. And uh, you know, California has lost like six million people over the last decade, half a million just the last couple of years. Utah is gaining thousands of people every year, tens of thousands. So what is Utah doing right how is it an example so far of good governance that other states should be able to follow? What can you point at in terms of what Utah is doing right? Well, I mean, I am one of the California exiles. I uh, born and raised in California. I lived in San Diego all the way until I went to college, and then I never came back. And uh, for me, like with many people, it was a financial decision. Um, you know, it was very tough to justify the cost of living for, you know, access to the beach when I could just come every few months and you know, fill my, my beach bucket for a, a weekend and, and then head back home. Um, right. You know, my parents ended up leaving. My sibling, like my whole family, so many friends, like everyone's leaving California that I know. Um, and it's been very interesting to see the trend, whether they land in Utah, Arizona, Florida, wherever, Texas they're going to. What Utah and a handful of other states are getting right is really recognizing that fundamentally people just want to provide for their families. They want to have a secure future. And when you have so much bureaucracy, taxes always increasing, being nickeled and dime all over the place, it makes it hard to forecast your own future. Am I going to be able to save for retirement? You know, are my children going to have to take care of me? So while California initially attracted so many people for its you know, climate and, and its politics of yesteryear, uh, you know, these people, I think, are largely making financial decisions now and recognizing in a cost-benefit analysis, it's, it's not really worth it for them when they can get that fulfillment of, you know, climate or uh, stuff through vacationing and visiting rather than living there, you know, year-round. And so, you know, Utah, low taxes, low regulation, very easy to set up a business. We're not nickel and diamond people, you know, comparatively uh, cheaper cost of living, still tons of access to the outdoors and all kinds of amazing stuff. 
uh, it, it just changes the dynamic for a lot of people. My parents in particular, you know, lived there for 30 years, ended up selling their home, uh, paid off the little amount of mortgage they had left after a refi, came to Utah, uh, built a brand new, bigger home and had cash left over. And so that becomes a very seductive financial decision for a lot of people when they get really bent out of shape with the progressive politics and the identity politics coming out of California. Um, and, you know, people all have different breaking points, but Utah is one of, I think, a handful of states that are particularly attractive to people who just don't want BS. They just want to have a decent family and be able to save for the future and uh, not have to worry about people digging their, their money grubbing hands in their pockets. And so that's what Utah is trying to do better than most. Right. And, and it's not just people that your, your parents age or my parents age moving there. It's a lot of young people as well, right? Which is pretty, pretty significant. A lot of millennial talent is moving to places like Utah uh, and away from places like California. That's looking what it's done to Japan. I mean, Japan's uh, mm -hmm. aging population is a huge problem because you have this kind of socialist pyramid ladder where the young take care of the old. But now as the old are you know, much more voluminous. Uh, than the young, because young people, they're you know, not having kids as much, they're moving, etc. It becomes very increasingly hard to prop up this system. California is on a spending spree. They are binging on all kinds of bloated government projects. And as the young people leave, the taxes are increasingly borne on older folks who, as they become wealthier, they start to say, well, wait a minute, maybe I don't want to have my retirement and my you know, earnings so impacted. It's just a fiscal game that is not going to have a good end. And, uh, you know, the sooner that California uh, recognizes that by voting better people in and changing the composition of the state assembly, you know, the better. But it seems like right now they're just kind of on full speed towards the cliff. And uh, the rest of us are now spectators to watch it happen with a bit of sadness for those like me who have a strong affection for, you know, our home state. It's just kind of sad what it's turned into. Yeah, no, actually, the, the, my parents moved from overseas. They're, they're immigrants to the United States. California was a place to be. It was the number one spot for immigrants to move to as well. And now you're seeing so many people just avoiding it altogether. And it's it's not a friendly place for for people who are trying to build up a life for themselves. It's it's one of the last places you want to go to. We talk about that on the show quite a bit. One of the interesting things is you, you mentioned places like Japan. So the sort of the, the clusterfuck of, of policies in California is really unique in the world because they're trying to implement things like, for example high-speed public rail, right? Like the kinds of things you see in Europe where they can justify the 50% taxes that you're paying and in return you get these these public benefits. But we're not even getting those, right? We're, we're spending $10 billion to get a, a rail from the thriving metropolises of Merced to Bakersfield, right? That's all they could accomplish. And and they're, they're, here in LA, they're trying to push people into public transportation. Differences in Europe and in Japan, for example, when you use a public transportation there, you're safe. You don't have to worry about you know being stabbed or, or being in a... a unsanitary condition, uh, dangerous conditions, or having crazy people on there. In California, you have to worry about that. So it's just like this special, unique uh, stew of just bad policies with high taxes without any of the actual justifications for those high taxes, which is pretty interesting. The uh, well, One of the things you guys, as, as I work on, is educating youth and, and focusing on entrepreneurship. You, have, in particular, have a, a children's book. Uh, what kinds of things, what kinds of values do you think it's important for both from a cultural perspective and from a from a government perspective to be teaching the future generation? Is it stuff like, you know, obey your authorities and and, uh, and don't critically question government experts and do what you're told, or or uh, are you emphasizing other things? 
uh, yeah, basically the exact opposite of what you just described. Uh, ju just as California has changed, so have public schools in general. Uh, I'm the product of public school in San Diego. And uh, in fact, I went there uh, to my hometown a few months ago. I was driving around and thought, eh, let's go through my old stomping grounds. And the school is barricaded. There's gates everywhere and cameras and metal detectors. And it's just a totally different world than the open kind of free nature of what it was when I was there in the late 90s. Uh, but more importantly, it's inside the classroom where these changes are happening. I, I consider schools to have two major sins. The first is sins of commission. And this is where they're committing error or bias or propaganda, where teachers are intentionally saying, you know, if you voted for Donald Trump, you're stupid, or the government is great, and the social safety net is amazing, and FDR's New Deal was, you know, phenomenal and had no problems, like committing misinformation. Those are the sins of, of commission. But far more prevalent, I think, are the sins of omission. And that is that schools are just not teaching a lot of important stuff that they once were or that they ought to be. I mean, things like entrepreneurship, how to start a business, how to think creatively, um, critical thinking skills. Again, the opposite of what you were saying, how to evaluate what the teacher him or herself is teaching you rather than just accepting it to be true. Right. How we talk about these things, property rights, uh, how government itself has been a threat to our rights in the past rather than glorifying uh, government. Granted, these are government schools, so don't expect government schools to teach you the, the downsides of government. But these are the sins of omission that parents mm -hmm. who want well-rounded kids, who want their children to understand how the world works, are increasingly finding that schools just don't talk about this stuff at all. So our series, it's called the Tuttle Twins, and uh, we've got like 20-some-odd books, toddler books, teen books, kids in between, for all ages where we're teaching them through storytelling a lot of these ideas, how money works, why inflation is happening, uh, the golden rule, what that means for us is kind of interacting with people, free markets, how how markets improve our lives because we're buying and selling and trying to, to better one another's lives. Uh, so through our stories, we teach these various ideas. We have these little discussion questions and activities that families can do together. But the whole idea is to get families talking together about ideas that matter because the schools are not talking about this stuff at all. And we're pumping out generations of idiot voters who just don't understand history. They don't understand their own rights or what's really going on in the world. And then we empower them to vote and control our lives through the ballot box. And I find that to be just right. horrendously uh, problematic. And so we're trying to reach the rising generation, instill these good values and ideas and hope for a better future. Right. Yeah. So, so you, you mentioned a couple of interesting things there. So you got the, the one hand... Our government has historically been evil and bad and, and uniquely uh, oppressive in the history of the world. That's what they're, they're taught as, as children. I was even taught some of that. I went to LAUSD public schools. But, you know, these kids aren't learning math, but they're learning that the founding fathers are racist. And they're not learning finance and entrepreneurship and, you know, the actual civics and actual proper history. Not only about the United States, but honestly about the world. But, but they're learning these, these destructive ideas to to hate the country and the symbols and its history and the founding that, that's built upon. Yeah, it's, it's problematic, especially for parents who don't realize this is happening. I mean, I talk to parents all the time who, who are shocked to see how their kids come away in their later years believing wildly different things. And these parents are like, how could that be? You know, I'm a conservative or whatever. Now my kid's wearing a Bernie Sanders shirt. And, right. and then, I, you know, I say, well, hang on, like, did you ever sit down as a family and talk about these ideas? Or did you just assume that the teachers were going to do it for you? Well, what if those teachers believe totally different ideas than you do? You're trusting people that you don't even know with your children's impressionable minds during their most formative development years. Good heavens, parents. Like, t be more intentional 
about who you're entrusting your kids to. And that's not to say that you should distrust all these institutions and all these individuals. It's just that you should trust but verify, right? And let's make sure that we understand what our kids are learning. I tell parents often, you will lose every battle that you don't know you're even fighting, right? If you don't realize that we're in an ideological battlefield and that our children's minds are basically ground zero for this conflict, you're going to lose every day. Right. But if you realize that there are individuals out there who want to push their ideas and their agendas on children so that they can take the future in a direction that they prefer. If you recognize that those people exist, then you can come up with, you know, a, a counter agent. You can strategize on how best to do something about it. You can give your kids a foundation of, of truth, of critical thinking skills so that as you send them out into the world, they're not just going to swallow wholesale whatever they're told. They can evaluate it, challenge right. it, figure out what they believe for themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's interesting when you. I, I hear sometimes a conservative critique about, you know, they're teaching cultural Marxism or things of that nature. But when you juxtapose it to a place like some of the, you know, so the major cities in China, for example, where they're actually learning, you know, all the flaws of, of China, you know, we, we don't need to go over them. There, there are many, but, you know, they are learning math. They are learning science. And, and far from basically learning to hate their country, they're trying to create cohesion in society. So it's almost worse than that. And I, and it, that's, that's a pretty remarkable statement to make. So the answer is essentially, I think one of the things COVID probably showed is that a lot of people got basically a view into people's classrooms, into their children's classrooms for the first time. They actually saw what these kids are actually learning, which is amazing. And, and even if we, we put it aside from the political context, they're, they really aren't learning all that much. Bill Maher was showing just a couple of weeks ago, they would ask Americans, these college kids, like random questions about, you know, so who, who was the first person who landed on the sun? And, you know, what country is Venice, Italy located in? Things like that. And people couldn't answer those questions, right? They, they thought Venice, Italy was in Brazil or something. And Neil Armstrong's first one who landed on the sun. So it's not just that they're learning horrible information, but oftentimes the things that they need to learn it are, are being neglected as well. And it's it's incumbent upon, I think, more people to be able to provide a alternative method to that. One of the interesting stats is uh, homeschool definitely isn't for everyone. Uh, but it's it was fascinating. I read that. In, in the 1970s, there was about 10,000 kids in homeschool programs in the United States, and today it's 5 million. So that's that's pretty unbelievable to me. It, it's it's yeah. believable in the sense that homeschooling in the 70s and, and through a good chunk of the 80s was basically illegal. It was, you know, renegades and hippies, you know, who were right. doing it on their own. And most states had compulsory education laws, which made no exception for homeschooling at all and limited exceptions for, you know, private schools, parochial schools, of course. And so it was during the 80s that the Homeschool Legal Defense Association and a few allies really pressed the issue in the courts and one by one started overturning state laws making that, that were preventing parents who are the primary caretakers for their children from also mm-hmm. being the primary educational providers for their children. And so these laws like dominoes started following, uh, falling. And so it was in the 80s that homeschooling really started to flourish. It had this uptick with these laws passing. We've had this steady increase. And then it tripled in the past couple of years because of COVID. Um, increasingly, whenever you see the government cracking down with things like Common Core and No Child Left Behind, and mm-hmm. certainly you know during COVID, you see these spikes where homeschooling kind of jumps because there's a lot, like, like with my parents leaving California, it's the straw that breaks the camel's back where they're like, oh, I've been thinking about this for a while. I've been debating it, but because they did that, whatever that is, right, I'm now going to go homeschool. And so right. we increasingly see a lot of parents who just say, you know, I'd rather go, you know, work or I'd rather do whatever, but like, this is a priority for me. So now I'm going to make it a, a priority and do it. 
Um, and so homeschooling is huge now, but we have to give credit to these legal pioneers who challenged these laws because the, the tiny handful you mentioned in the 70s were these early rebels, uh, which is silly to think about because all Americans once were homeschooled and had these little micro schools and right, rooms right. and houses. So it's getting back to the early American tradition, I guess you might say. What else are you guys working on in your advocacy and your sort of educational push to, to reform policies? What are the other most important things that, for example, for Utah, that, that you think needs to change but can also be applied to other states who probably are doing even a worse job? Yeah, I mean, one of the big issue pushes uh, across the country right now uh, is uh, kind of the school choice, you might say, education savings accounts. So rather than the state paying five, 10, 15 grand for my kid to go to the local public school, what if I could take that money and put my kid in a good private school or I could pay a tutor and have a little like, you know, private mini micro school. Um, I could do a homeschool co-op, pay for field trips, curriculum, use, use those funds in a much more targeted way that will help my child rather than just throwing them into the ocean and in the public school. Right. So West Virginia, Arizona, and others are really uh, uh, leading the charge on setting up these good programs where parents have more choice and can figure mm -hmm. out what's best with their kids rather than just having the only option be to send them to the local government school. That's something right. we're working on in Utah as well. Um, the other thing that we did recently that we're uh, going to be leaning into in the, in the months ahead is what we call an education sandbox. This is a pattern after our, our broader regulatory sandbox policy push. But what it basically means is if you're a teacher, you know, you signed up to inspire your kids because you love helping kids learn. And you find yourself increasingly frustrated oftentimes because of all the mandates, the top-down curriculum requirements, the restrictions, the bureaucracy. So under this education sandbox that we got passed in Utah, the first of its kind in the country, uh, a teacher can put together an innovation plan. And they can say, you know, I want to do things a bit differently. I don't want to have to do what that plan says or what that standard tells me to do or these school district restrictions that are in place. I'd rather set those aside and do things differently. So they come up with a plan. They shop it around to the families, uh, the parents of the children in their, their class. And I believe it's if they get uh, two-thirds support, then they're able to basically suspend those regulations that they otherwise would have to comply with. And they get a $5,000 grant to cover any costs of materials or activities uh, that are in their innovation plan. This is trying to reopen uh, innovation in the classroom rather than these top-down mandates that we get from bureaucrats. Let's empower right. these teachers to have some creativity and focus on exactly what their students need. So that's a brand new program that's just about to launch with this law we got passed, and we're going to try to get that passed across the country too. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah, I, it really is criminal that poor folks are forced to take their children into schools that are literally guaranteed to fail their children, right? That's that's criminal. Like, rich people can take them wherever they want, but poor parents in these certain states have to send them to certain schools where there's like 3% proficiency, if that, in, in meeting math requirements, math standards, science standards, reading standards. It, it is a, a big tragedy. I think of people in rural towns. So in rural Utah, uh, we met a family with uh, an autistic child, and there's no services at their local school. I mean, their local school, gov public school, government school, is very bare bones. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, if they had a program like we're describing and could take those funds instead of just having their kid be, you know, have their butt in the seat at the local school, if they could instead hire online tutors, online right. you know, therapists, 
education coaches, whatever they would need. It could be online. It could be paying someone to come out periodically and do it in person. It could be getting together with the four other families with special needs kids and attracting a, a you know a, a, a tutor to come and do all you know all their kids together. It just opens up more options. Whether you're poor, you're in rural, you know uh, America, or whatever the circumstances are, we have to recognize that one size doesn't fit all. And yet, the government school system was very much built for one size. I, I was in the gifted uh, track in school in, in California when I was there. And even then, I was bored. And I, I hope I, I'm not coming across as boasting, but school was a challenge for me because so often I wanted to learn other things. I would ask questions about you know different things. I was curious about stuff. And the teachers would always say, no, 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 that's not what we're learning. Nope, that's not on the test. Nope, save that for after school. No, 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 no. And, uh, and I felt like I had handcuffs on my brain or whatever, right? Just right. like a straight jacket. And, and uh, one size doesn't fit all. It didn't fit me. I hated mm. school. I had to, it was all the way after college where I finally had to learn how to love learning because for 15 years it had been drudgery and monotony and kind of pump and dump where I'd have to cram information in my brain and then I could let it go after the test. Uh, and so I, th I think that's tragic. I think it's not at all what learning is or ought to be. And so what I'm hopeful with programs like this is that we can empower families to say, we know one size doesn't fit all. Let's help you find something that fits your kids' specific needs and interests. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it's just such an important point because – and you see it from time to time where a, a teacher or an educator online will do something really innovative. And there's so many – incredible ways so much so many better ways to learn than sort of the 19th century model that we've been handed down and standardized across the education right. system in this country i know you guys work a lot on reforming regulations that stifle business or make people's lives harder what are the sorts of regulations that you guys are targeting and have targeted that per people yeah so uh, this is very germane to the discussion about this education sandbox because it is basically a, a school version of a broader system that we got passed in Utah, first law of its kind in the country, uh, what's called a regulatory sandbox. So let me share an example to illustrate how this works. Uh, if you're Elon Musk, let's say, and you want to sell Teslas to people, where here in Utah, as with many states, uh, it was illegal to sell cars directly to people, which is Tesla's business model. They're direct to consumer. You don't go to a Tesla dealership, right? You just order it online and, and you get your car. But in Utah, there was a law saying that you had to go through car dealerships. And of course it was the car dealerships who over the decades had lobbied to get the laws you know, set up this way. Oh, but if people buy cars directly, they might buy a lemon, right? They might not know what's right. They need to go through a car dealership. Well, then along comes Elon Musk and he's like, I wanna sell cars directly to people. And it was illegal in Utah and elsewhere. So they had to go to the Supreme Court, they had to challenge it, they had to go to the legislature. They ultimately got it fixed. But that's because Elon has the financial capacity to make that happen. These large right. companies like Uber and Lyft, right, fighting the taxi laws, they've got deep pockets to fund lobbyists, uh, to fund lawyers, and to have the ability to survive that fight and push through the obstacles. Well, what about the little guy? What about, you know, Bob sitting at his kitchen table mapping out this new business idea? And uh, come to find out it's illegal because... 25 years ago, this one law was passed and it basically says you can't do what you want to do, whatever that is for your business. Well, if you're Bob, you don't have money to fund lawyers and lobbyists. You don't have connections. You just say, well, I, you know, I guess I can't do that. And you move on. And your American dream is snuffed out before it can even start. So a regulatory sandbox is a law that lets people like Bob get a waiver 
for a particular law or regulation, just like the teacher I mentioned in the classroom who can suspend those uh, education rules. So in this case, Bob could say, well, I want to start this business. There's that law that says I can't do this. I'd like to be shielded from that law for up to two years. So Bob fills out a simple application. He describes what the business is or is going to be. And, uh, and then the regulators chat about it. And there's a whole process with appeals and uh, checks and balances and the like. But at the end of the day, Bob has a very real opportunity to start growing his business and put that law on pause. All the while, there's reporting, there's transparency, lawmakers are getting updated. Because again, if, if Bob, let's say Bob grows this business without that law or regulation in place, and no one is harmed, and there's no problems, and there's no, you know, credible lawsuits, and there's no damage, or, you know, nothing's going wrong, a legislator might say, well, okay, then shouldn't we just get rid of that regulation. Maybe we should just, you know, repeal it altogether or go amend it and make it so that Bob's business can, and other businesses like Bob's can go thrive rather than shutting them down. So a regulatory sandbox then becomes a mechanism where legislators can make sure they have the right regulations in place. Right now, if you're an elected official, this has happened for our entire decade of existence with Libertas Institute. We'll go up to Capitol Hill and we'll say, hey, we got to change this law. So, you know, Uber and Lyft can, uh, drive their cars around, right? And then you get the lobbyists for the taxi industry or whatever the industry is that we're challenging on the other side. And they come up into the other ear of the legislator with their doom and gloom. Oh, but if anyone can drive a car, you know, with a passenger, if they're not certified, blah, blah, blah. And they have this doom and gloom. So you're a legislator, you're caught in the middle of the lobbyists for the innovators and the lobbyists for the incumbents. And you're just hearing all these speculations about what would happen if the law were changed or what could happen if the law were changed. But with a regulatory sandbox, that legislator can now get information. He can say, well, let's just do this like one or two year trial and we'll watch and we'll make sure there's no problems. And now at the end of two years, when it comes time to decide if we should change the law, we're going to have actual data. We can see whose predictions and speculation is borne out. And if it so happens that the lobbyists for the incumbent you know, protectionist uh, companies were totally wrong, then I can move forward and vote for getting rid of that regulation because it doesn't make any sense. So it's just a fantastic way to help legislators make smarter policy decisions. And what we did in Utah is got them, uh, the legislature, to pass a law that basically allows a regulatory sandbox for any business, any size, anything. We've helped two dozen states pass laws across the country getting sandboxes of various kinds passed. Uh, Arizona just became the second state to pass this, what we call an all-inclusive sandbox, any business, any industry. Whereas in other states, they typically will start with a specific industry. They'll take the financial technology or fintech sector with you know crypto and, and the like, or they'll do insurance or agriculture. And then once they get their feet wet and they kind of see, oh, this is actually kind of a helpful thing, then they can pursue this broader model and do it for all businesses rather than picking winners and losers and doing you know one or two industries at a time. So we think this is a huge step forward for making sure we have smarter regulations in place, not these like heavy-handed ones that are punitive. And, uh, and so that's kind of a very new and, and emerging thing across the country is this idea of regulatory sandboxes. It's an excellent idea. One of the sort of interesting, the ironies, the unintended consequences of a lot of these progressive policies, the justification for them is, well, we're, we're helping out the little people, we're helping out, you know, the poor working people, etc. And what ends up happening is only the big players can afford to comply with the regulations and... Ordinary people have the absolute worst time and an inability to ever get 
their businesses off the ground because of the insane costs and burdens of the regulations. We had a situation in San Francisco that was actually reported on by the San Francisco Chronicle about this uh, Asian immigrant who tried to open up an ice cream shop in San Francisco in you know a fairly run-down street, apparently, where he was going to make it much nicer, he was going to gentrify it, remodel it, etc. And by the end of it, he had put in about quarter million, $300,000 all his life savings into trying to get this ice cream shop off the ground. And he had nothing to show for it because when it came to contesting the permits and the regulations made it so easy to sue somebody to prevent them from opening up shops. And, you know, you see, you see these stories all the time in LA and San Francisco, these, these regulations that prevent ordinary people from being able to start their own businesses. Obviously, the, the COVID lockdowns didn't help things either, right? That's pretty much exempted places like Costco and fueled places like Amazon and ordinary working people uh, didn't get so lucky in terms of what they were able to do. Uh, their businesses were shut down. So this is something that I really hope changes. It shouldn't be a right or left thing. We should all agree that we want to support small businesses and doing things like that where, where you're giving regular people the ability to compete seems like a common sense thing. And I really hope that gets through the brains of other people across the aisle. I would hope so. And and we've seen some early success with these sandbox policies where, like in our case, it was totally bipartisan. All the Democrats, you know, voted. That's for great. It. They recognized our uh, our example, right? Where it's the little guy who gets screwed. The wealthy people can make their problems go away. They can, you know, withstand one, two, three years of problems and kind of outspend the other guy. Uh, the, the wealthy folks are going to get their way. This is an opportunity to help the little guy and, and level the playing field where, you know, even though they don't have connections and money and high powered lobbyists, uh, they can still have a shot and we can move these regulations out of the way that only serve the interest of the the incumbents and the bureaucrats. And so we're hopeful that this is going to be not the solution, but but a really big solution to really address a lot of these issues. Eventually, the goal is to get a federal sandbox passed as well, because for a lot of business owners, the biggest regulatory problems and the most insane, ridiculous regulations that they have to comply with are at the federal level. And so having the ability to uh, suspend some of those, gather data, see if those regulations are actually making any meaningful difference, um, that that's kind of the ultimate goal is that as we get a lot of states to do these sandboxes, we can then uh, work with the you know various federal delegations of these states and get a, a sandbox at the national level. Right, absolutely. I saw also one. This one was interesting to me. You guys are also working on psychedelics and regulations around that. Can you speak about that? Yeah. So our organization about five years ago got uh, medical cannabis legalized in Utah. No one ever thought we'd be able to do it. Uh, it was about a five-year campaign. Uh, it took us that long to do it. And so we were able to get our legislature comfortable enough to move forward and legalize this federally illegal uh, psychoactive substance. And it's been great. Uh, all the projections, the, the statistical uh, analyses that they did to figure out how many patients there would be by looking at surrounding states with their you know various programs. We've more than doubled, uh, almost tripled the number of patients anyone thought. Tons of people are getting help. There's no crazy stuff going on. You know the crime rate isn't up. None of this. So with that in mind, we're now turning our attention to psychotherapy uh, drugs. Uh, so this is you know psilocybin or what we often call magic mushrooms, um, ayahuasca, uh, you know LSD all that kind of stuff. And and these mm -hmm. 
substances. Of course, they've been decriminalized in a few jurisdictions like Oregon and Denver and D.C., but these are all left-leaning places, and right. no state has figured out how to how to do proactive legalization. Uh, it's one thing with marijuana to have decriminalized it in some jurisdictions, but what uh, became far more common, and I argue what made it more successful in spreading to other states, was a legalization model to actually have you know regulated dispens. As much as I don't love extra regulations and everything else as a libertarian. Um, it, it is what increased the adoption rate. And so we're looking at doing the same thing with these psychotherapy drugs to say, instead of going the, the route of these left-leaning jurisdictions of just saying, hey, you know, more power to you, you know, that, then people don't know the, the quality of the, the medicine they're using, you know, they don't know its purity, they don't know Absolutely. its chain of custody. Um, and so we want to figure out a, a legal regulatory model where just like with marijuana, in a sense, we can have, you know, testing and, and, uh, inspections and regulated businesses that can be involved in this to give certainty to patients in Utah and create a precedent where we can then take this model and help other states do the same thing. We want Utah to be the first state to figure out this this legal model and uh, as kind of a blueprint for other states. So early this year, we got a law passed that created a task force to bring together all these you know, clinicians and therapists and, and scientific researchers to look at what does the scientific literature coming out of you know, Johns Hopkins and elsewhere say about using this stuff for anxiety and depression and everything else. They're meeting all summer and fall, and then they're gonna give their recommendation to the legislature and say, hopefully, you know, hey, for these drugs, for these you know, illnesses, we think they could be helpful, let's get this done. And then in next year's legislative session, hopefully we would come up with a, a bill that would basically do just that and create this regulatory system, work out the kinks, get it off the ground, but then start scaling that to other states as well. This stuff is phenomenally transformative for people with like treatment resistant depression, and anxiety and everything. And so I'm very hopeful we can get something done, especially because the current landscape for mental health treatment is piss poor. I mean, there's just a dearth of uh, of practitioners to help the medications on the market just paper over the problem. They, they treat symptoms, not underlying issues. And what things like psilocybin appear to be helping with is not just making you feel better with the symptoms, not just symptom management, but actually uprooting some of this anxiety and depression that people are feeling, where when you read these stories of people using this stuff, it's amazing. These people saying, I have hope for the first time in, you know, 25 years. I'm, I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life. I haven't been depressed, you know, since my last trip that I did, you know, three months ago. Like, just mind-blowing stuff that you never see with any of the pharmaceuticals out there. So, uh, fingers crossed, that's what we're going to work on in Utah. Learn from what we did with medical cannabis. Apply that knowledge to this process. Hopefully get it right and then scale it to other states. Right, right, right. Yeah, so we, we criticize the left plenty. But one big blind spot of red states is this prohibition on, on things like psychedelics and psilocybin and MDMA. We had on Charlie Winninger, who was one of the advisors to the MAP trials, and where they're giving MDMA to people who have such extreme forms of PTSD, nothing has worked for years and years and years, and they give them these uh, these doses of MDMA, and their, their lives have changed drastically. They never have problems with, with the PTSD anymore, or they're significantly reduced. And the results are pretty stunning, right? Just from that alone, of course, the, there's been trials on this psilocybin as well. The data's pretty incredible in terms of its benefits to people suffering from all sorts of mental illnesses. For that not to be going and accelerating more right now is, is pretty irresponsible. People need to look at these things. I mean, if, if it's helping out 
uh, our vets who have tried everything in the world and and have done so much for our country. Like, let's get a move on this thing. The red states really need to step up their game on this stuff and, and create a, like we, what you guys are doing, like a proper framework, how to implement these very promising solutions in society that are going to help people. That's the hope. Uh, I'm, I'm very hopeful. And, and for me, man, hearing the stories of these people, it's just so motivating to want to, to want to help, right? To be in a position to say, oh, we've done it before with another illegal drug. <laughs> let's now do it with this one. I, I have a brother who, um, you know, has some mental illness issues and he's used psilocybin very successfully uh, to, to deal with these issues and seeing how it's helped him, like he shouldn't be in jail, you know, like he shouldn't have his prospects destroyed just because he's using this as a medicine and it's actually helping. Unlike all the pharmaceuticals that just give right. him a cloudy mind. And right. well, there's no, there's no profit margin on the, on the psilocybin. That's the problem. Right. <laughs> right exactly. And so, you know, I, I think we can pull it off. At least something will be done. It might be a, a minimal step. The challenge we have, I think, is with cannabis, you know, the legalization effort's been around for a while. Utah was like the 30-something uh, state to, to, you know, set up a law. We were not a leader. We were very much a follower. And so right. there was more national attention to it. It was easier, I think, ultimately for the legislators to say, like, okay, fine, right? This is brand new. I mean, it's it's not brand new, uh, but the, the legalization effort is. And uh, we're tip of the spear here especially when you look at the jurisdictions that have done it and they're all kind of lefty that for a red state to lead out on this is just like, wait, what? Um, exactly. and so, so we're hopeful we can do it right because I know that a lot is writing on it, uh, both for mm -hmm. patients in Utah, but across the country whose prospects might be better if we can get it done here because a lot of people right. look to Utah and they say if a highly religious conservative, you know, uh, state can nevertheless legalize psychedelics like maybe mm -hmm. we in texas or arizona or florida or west virginia or wherever might you know start looking uh, into this and so i think a lot is writing on this but to me that means it's all the more exciting and uh i think good things are, are to come across this whole issue because the word's getting out i mean netflix just released their documentary how to change your mind by michael Pollan. um there's a lot more attention being given this uh, lately. And so I'm hopeful that in the next few years, like with cannabis, we'll start to see the dominoes fall and more and more states provide this as an option for mental health uh, patients in their state. All right, right. And not only are you, are you helping people, you're also freeing up law enforcement resources that need to go to more important things rather than chase people down for using mushrooms or, or acid. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely asinine and, and I'm glad. I, I do see a lot of people my age who you know are centrists or um, certainly all the, all the liberal people i know but but in, including people who are like have conservative leanings uh, are much more inclined to to support this kind of thing of, of legalization of, of these drugs it's ridiculous i mean it's absolutely ridiculous that we're, we're spending time trying to stop people from you know getting help getting things that really help them and and honestly are way less dangerous than a lot of things that are legal quite frankly and it helps law enforcement too because now they can focus on more important things you guys also one of your big pillars in terms of you focus on is data privacy it's something i don't have a too sharp a focus on what are you guys doing with that and what, why should we care so there's a lot of ways to answer this question i'll i'll give one that i think stands out in the 80s there was a u.s supreme court case uh, that created what's called the third-party doctrine. What happened was there was a guy who had some bank records uh, and the cops wanted access. They got access without a warrant. And that was challenged, went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the court said, well, we're actually going to allow this to happen without a warrant to be able to access this guy's bank records because if he really wanted it to be private, he would have kept that money and those records to himself. 
But by taking it to the bank, a third party, then he has a lower presumption of privacy. And as a result, we don't think a warrant should be needed. Government can have its prying eyes in there anytime it wants. Well, maybe that makes a little sense in an analog world with papers, but in a digital world, the third-party doctrine is asinine. Let's use our interview right now as an example. You and I are, quote-unquote, directly communicating with one another, and yet there are multiple third parties in between us, right? Your internet service provider and mine, this platform we're using, their website, and you know other services they may be relying on to to you know create the software they have there's all kinds of third parties who have access to our data right even you know think of uploading something to dropbox sensitive financial documents sending someone a, a intimate photo in snapchat or you know whatever that these direct digital communications are never direct and the supreme court has basically said that the government can spy on all of it without a warrant because if we really cared, we would keep that information to ourselves. So what we got done in Utah is we passed a law that closed this third-party loophole that said, look, we don't care where the data is, if it's on your computer, if it's in the cloud, if it's held by another company, anything, you have to get a warrant. We want judicial oversight before the government can you know, snoop on it and get access to it. This is what mm -hmm. the Fourth Amendment should have always allowed right. for. But the Supreme Court four decades ago screwed it up and have created this massive loophole that's created a surveillance state uh, in our country. And so they started to correct it a little bit. There was a, 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 car, a case called Carpenter versus U.S. just a few years ago where, again, in a five to four ruling, the Supreme Court walked that back a little bit. There was this guy named Carpenter. He was stealing from a radio shack, and the FBI was uh, able to go to, I think it was Verizon, uh, and get his cell phone location information, basically all the pings, where mm -hmm. his phone was, and they mapped out and they said, aha, you were at the Radio Shack at the precise time, therefore we know it's you. That was challenged, went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and they, on a five to four ruling, walked the third party doctrine back ever so slightly and said, all right, for cell phone location information, because it is revealing information about the individual, we are going to require that a warrant be obtained to access the cell phone location information of an individual. But what that case did not cover is everything else, all other digital communications, basically 99% of our digital data. And so, however, I think that ruling was helpful to say, oh, here's an opportunity where the court is starting to walk it back. So Utah passed a law to say, you know, we're closing the full loophole. We don't care what it is. We're going to protect people's data with a, a, a judicial warrant. And so that's another one where we're across the country helping some groups like us to pass similar laws um, so that we can close that loophole. We, we should care about privacy, even if we're innocent of, of crimes, empowering the government to, and, and the people who work in the government, random sleazeballs who have access to right. all of our intimate data. It's just a, a nightmare. And so mm -hmm. we're trying to close that loophole across the country and make sure that the Fourth Amendment applies to the digital age. Yeah, well, I mean, it's so unexpected and and unlike the government to abuse their power and snoop into our uh, private lives right. right and i don't think we have we don't have, have any precedent for that no yeah if it happens yeah, let yeah. me know i'd be very curious <laughs> yeah that's i haven't heard that one before what gives you most pessimism about the future and what gives you most hope what gives me the most pessimism is people repeating the mistakes of the past um you know there's that quote uh that uh, if you don't learn from the past then you're condemned to repeat it you know, we've been down this path again. History is very cyclical. And if we allow the schools to pump out these ignorant voters to, to you know, keep 
controlling us at the ballot box, like that's that's a huge problem. I get very pessimistic at seeing how apathetic people are towards what's going on in the world, how they continue mm-hmm. to vote the same incumbents into Congress and believe the lies and uh, right. people's willingness to just uh, believe whatever official people on TV, you know, tell them and, and master uh, children. <laughs> right. It, it's it's to me, I, I become pessimistic when I think about that, that the people just uh, are so deceived, so easily deceived. Um, conversely, and, and I would say like very similarly, what gives me hope is, is this Tuttle Twins project we're working on. And the reason why is that every day I get texts and emails and tweets and all the rest from moms and dads, mostly the moms, who are sharing stories about how their children are having these aha moments. I had this one mom uh, email me, it was about three or four days ago, and she said that they turned on you know, the TV and they were watching um, President Biden talk about inflation. And he was claiming with the most recent data that came out, he was trying to claim that inflation is at zero now right, because right. it didn't increase even beyond what it has before. Yeah, yeah. And this nine-year-old kid, her nine-year-old son starts yelling at the TV saying, he's a liar. Inflation's going up. It's because they're printing a bunch of money. It's the Federal Reserve. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's exactly right. And here's this nine-year-old kid who knows. And so you got to think, what is, what is the collective <clears throat> impact, the aggregate impact? of millions of kids learning about the way the world really works at a young age, developing these critical thinking skills so that when they hear the lies in the media and the garbage from the politicians and when they see these mistakes happening again and again, they have a foundation of understanding to check that against and say, I don't believe that, that's BS. Like, imagine if in 30 years, half of Congress grew up on the Tuttle Twins books and there's a, a more widespread understanding about the kind of ideas of human flourishing and the American tradition. That would be a massive game changer. And so for me, it's, it's investing in young people. Like, like to me, a lot of adults are lost. It's like a gardener who is in an orchard full of diseased trees, knotted yeah. and decaying. And Yeah, sure, go fertilize them and make sure they're watered and try and restore those trees back to good health. You should do that. But any good gardener worth his salt is also focused on the seeds and the saplings, making right. sure that they avoid that same fate. And I think for those of us who care about freedom, we have not been doing that in past decades. Mm-hmm. We've always been focused on voters, educating voters, all these right. civic groups talk about. And, and they're already knotted, decaying trees by that point. Sure, keep doing what you're doing. But man, 5, 10, 20% of our effort should be focused on young people investing in the future so that we can have a generational shift. That to me gives me a lot of optimism because there's so much potential. And, uh, and if we don't squander it, if we actually lean into it and systematize it and really, which is what we're trying to do with the Tuttle Twins, if we really uh, capitalize on the opportunity, man, we could change all kinds of stuff in the decades to come. Uh, so I'm, I'm short-term pessimistic, but I'm long-term optimistic. Right, right. And, and look, the, the woke propagandists have definitely targeted the children and made sure that they are exposed to their worldview, right? And I think a lot of people who are sort of apolitical or centrist or maybe have conservative leanings have completely avoided this topic. You have to get children educated about how that world actually works, financial literacy, education, you know. Math is not a product of white supremacy. You know, the, the America was incredible, incredible story. And, you know, the alignment values are amazing and know about our government, know about civics, uh, know about philosophy, know about the classics, know about, you know, the, the truth of, of things like communism, right, and your history. So, yeah, it, it is it is 
something that we haven't paid enough attention to in the past and something we really need to work on in the present and in the future. I agree. And, and uh, I think the hour is late. To me, there's a bit of urgency when we think about this yeah. too. I, I, I look at our world and how some of these problems I, I think are accelerating. And, um, and, and so to me, it, it speaks to this need to like, oh, you know, I'll get around to this. Oh yeah, I'll talk to my kids about that eventually. It's like, no, I, I right. think we need, you know, put your shoulder to the wheel. It's time to push and it's time to move this thing forward because um, I, I think we're in, in some potentially dark times, but yeah. uh, you know, there's silver linings in every cloud. I mean, even with COVID and all the lockdowns and crazy stuff, to our earlier conversation with these education freedom options, man, that accelerated that movement by like a decade, showing mm -hmm. all these parents about the problems and now they're homeschooling or micro-schooling or set up their little pandemic pods and all kinds of stuff. Okay. So there's a silver lining all the time. I'm always on the look for that. And I do think we have some dark times ahead, but that means for you know entrepreneurial-minded people and, and you know freedom fighters, there's a lot of opportunity to move things from being bad to less bad and help more people along the way. Right. And every time they're caught in a lie, people trust them less and less. So, uh, you know, that, that's, that's certainly one thing that we've, we've been seeing more of. Connor Boyack, thank you so much for, for coming on. Where can people find more about you and more about Libertas? Thank you. So the, the children's books we talked about, those are all at TuttleTwins.com. And uh, to go learn about Libertas Institute, it's at Libertas.org. Appreciate it, man. If you enjoyed our show, please click subscribe to stay up to date with our YouTube channel and podcast, and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so that we can keep delivering guys some great content. Thanks for listening, and we will be back next week. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started.